uh, then we'll just dive right in to what the Lord has for us tonight. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be um, in your house tonight and with your people. And Lord, we are just so grateful for your grace that we live in and under every day. And Father, we thank you for the redemption that we that you have secured for us in our Lord Jesus Christ and the ability to live free, the ability to enter uh, your rest, the ability to know our sins are forgiven and uh, our guilt has been removed. And Father, we're no longer your enemies, but now we are your friends. What a joyous reality for us to consider as we live moment by moment on this earth, longing to see our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for all who are gathered here tonight. I thank you for all of the kids who are here, the, the uh, Awana leaders and the volunteers. Pray you bless their time as they help them hide the word in their hearts. And I just pray that this time would be fruitful for all of us as well as we consider uh, the virgin birth of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have notes. I tried to pass around some notes. If you want some, there's some handouts up here in the front. This is, again, chapter 4 of the Apostles' Creed, written by Albert Moeller, that we're studying through, and we're going to be speaking specifically about the virgin birth tonight. Hopefully they didn't teach that last week. Hopefully I did get the right chapter. So I see that, that that's, I look like an affirmation, so I'm good. Um, tonight what we want to do, I, I was really fascinated by the chapter, by the way, and I don't know if you have the book and are reading it. Um, the, the chapters are, seem to be fairly short, uh, which I, I like. Um, but I was really fascinated by the chapter, and I hope that sort of comes out tonight, and, uh, and, and I'll steal my thunder a little bit. Just the, it's, it's not that as if we didn't know that the virgin birth was critical for um, God's plan of redemption, uh, but man, Moeller really hones in on that reality in this chapter, and uh, I was just really uh, blessed by that as I studied it, and I hope you were, as, if you've read it, uh, as well. So I hope some of that sort of unpacks a little bit tonight. And what I want to do is, and this is what I did in the last study that we did on the nine marks, is just start out tonight with a few, um, just what I felt like were key quotes from the chapter from Dr. Moeller that really um, sets the stage and sort of whets the appetite for us to consider this um, crucial doctrine. So let's look there on page one, um, just some key quotes um, from Dr. Mo- from uh, Dr. Moeller. Um, he says here, and I have footnotes listed down there, and if you're a seminary student, don't beat up my footnotes, okay? It's just for reference. Um, I did my best, so it's been a long time since I've been in seminary. Um, uh, letter A there, the key quotes from Dr. Moeller. Please come and get notes. Please pass them around. Um, the scriptures teach, concerning the virgin birth, nothing less than the virgin birth of Christ. Indeed, without such a birth, there is no gospel. So that, that is an impactful statement right there. Without the virgin birth of Christ, there is no gospel. So right out of the gate in the chapter, he takes this crucial doctrine concerning Christ and his birth, and he immediately says, we have no gospel without this crucial reality. A Christian who doesn't believe in the virgin birth is in eternal peril. For the one in whom he believes is not the one who has testified in the scriptures. Looking at letter B there. So in the very, at the very outset, he connects the virgin birth to the gospel. Letter B, the church, he says, I hope to show you must affirm the virgin birth because it rests at the foundation of other crucial, critical rather, doctrines. 
So think about what he's saying there, the impact of that statement. The virgin birth lies at the foundation, not at the top, not in the middle, not on the side, but at the foundation of other critical doctrines. So there are doctrines in our, in our faith, in the Christian faith, that are dependent upon, that rest upon the reality of the virgin birth. I don't know, that impacted me. That, that hit me whenever I read that statement. He goes on to say, without the virgin birth, for example, Christ is not God. And letter C, also he says, without the virgin birth, the gospel does not provide salvation. So here's a key statement. That the virgin birth, there is no salvation. He does not provide salvation. There is no salvation apart from the virgin birth of Christ. If the virgin birth is a lie, then Jesus could never reverse the curse and save sinners. So it's important. Oh, and there is one more quote here. Christians today must affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Indeed, the Christian faith and the Bible on which the faith stands demand it. So in typical Moeller fashion, he is demanding a verdict. He is demanding us to not only believe in the virgin birth, he's saying that the Scripture actually demands us to believe it wholeheartedly as it is revealed in the Gospels. So we have some key connections here. The virgin birth and the Gospel, the virgin birth and doctrine itself, and the virgin birth and salvation all depend on this key doctrine. And he goes on in, chap in the chapter, to, secondly, uh, to affirm the, the reality of the virgin birth as seen through the eyes of the church fathers. And he does make one quote here from Irenaeus. Um, he's, Muller says, they, the church fathers, were some of the first to see a three-way connection between the nature of Christ's conception, the nature of Christ, and the work of Christ. In other words, the nature of Christ's conception is central to the entire story of redemption. So now he makes it even a bigger reality. We have gospel, we have salvation, we have doctrine, but now the entire story of redemption is woven into the virgin birth. Letter B, Jesus only serves as a perfect substitute and an efficacious offering for sin if he is both fully God and fully man. And, and he uses a quote here from Irenaeus con, uh, commenting. So in this quote, what Irenaeus is doing is he's commenting on the denial of the virgin birth. And, and he does, through a negative, he creates a positive. And I put together part of the quote here that I thought was important. Uh, Irenaeus said, for he would not have been uh, one truly possessing flesh and blood. So for denying the virgin birth, then he, Jesus, would have been one not truly possessing flesh and blood, by which he redeemed us, unless he had summed up in himself the ancient form of Adam, that is, humanity, and that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary, and the power of the Most High did, not, did overshadow her. That comes directly from Luke one thirty-five. And wherefore, she also what was generated is a holy thing and the Son of the Most High God, the Father of all. So we have the connection there between his humanity and his deity, okay, through the concept of the virgin birth. So if we're going to deny the virgin birth, then we're denying the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, taking on human nature, being fully God and fully man at the same time. And so this was confessed by the church fathers, and Moeller uses Irenaeus' quote here as an example of that reality. 
Uh, letter D, there at the top of page 2, the church fathers understood that without a proper understanding of Jesus in the womb, one would never understand the significance of Christ on the cross. The, nature's, the nature of Christ's conception is central to the gospel. So we see, even with the church fathers, they begin to unfold this reality that the story of redemption, uh, the story of salvation, the story of the gospel is uh, inextricably linked to the reality of the virgin birth of Christ. Okay? So we have the gospels, the gospel, we have Jesus, the gospel writers, we have the church fathers all um, affirming this. So number three, why is the virgin birth included in the Apostles' Creed? Well, it's this whole concept of the story of redemption. All right, so that's just a setup. That's just a little bit of setup from the chapter of the importance of the virgin birth as it relates to redemption, as it relates to salvation, the gospel, and actually the person of Christ. So what I want to do with that sort of setup, and that really is, to me, a compelling, compelling apologetic uh, to believe in the virgin birth, um, let's talk just briefly about the incarnation, then we're going to talk about the virgin birth and, and look at a couple uh, the two significant passages, and then we'll go down into where Muller breaks apart some of the key theological um, implications of the virgin birth, okay? So Roman numeral two there is just uh, uh, the incarnation. So I put that in here so we could just have a, a concept of Jesus uh, in the flesh. And so letter A under Roman numeral 2, to understand the virgin birth, it is helpful to begin with the end result, and that is the incarnation. And so we know the incarnation is just a theological term used to describe Jesus and his humanity. We'll see down at the bottom of the page, you see there, incarnation really just means in flesh. Okay, that's what it means in, in its essence. And so we're talking here about Jesus' humanity, him taking on the nature of a man. All right, consider some New Testament passage when we think of the incarnation of Christ. All of these should be familiar to us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here in John 1.14, we see the Word became flesh. That's a uh, a reference to the incarnation of Christ. Letter B in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, the seminal passage here uh, on the incarnation of Christ and the hypostatic union. Paul says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made like in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in Philippians 2, we also see this reality of the incarnation, Jesus taking on the form of a man. Letter C, in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul also writes there, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So, Paul here in this verse, in 1 Timothy 3.16, in a reference to the, to the incarnation of Jesus in the flesh, referring to the fact that he was revealed in the flesh. Okay, number three, all of these texts really are references to the incarnation of Christ. And in an overview fashion, they speak of the incarnation and Jesus taking on the additional nature of a man. Okay, the initial nature of a human nature. And that's what the incarnation means in the flesh. In Jesus' case, he never ceased to be God, but rather took on an additional nature, a human nature to his person. That's important for us to understand. So when 
Jesus, and through the virgin birth, didn't cease being God. His deity was not, did not go away. He actually took on an additional nature. He took on an additional nature of a man uh, of flesh, being the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Okay, now you can flip to page 3. Dr. Paul Inns affirms in his Moody Handbook of Theology, the word incarnation means in the flesh and denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature, that of humanity. Wayne Grudem on the incarnation says it this way, it is the act of God, the Son, the son whereby he took to himself a human nature. Okay, so that's what we're talking about in the incarnation. Jesus taking on a human nature, adding an additional nature to his person. All right? How did this take place? Well, that's what the topic of our discussion that took place, obviously, through the virgin birth. All right? So let's look at the virgin birth. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll read the, the, the account there, and then we'll also go to Luke um, as well and look at uh, the account of the virgin birth there. So Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll also look at Luke chapter 1 as well. As you're turning there, let me just work through a little bit of the introduction here in section 3. So we're on page 3, section 3, letter A. The virgin birth was the means whereby the incarnation took place, meaning that Jesus took on flesh the additional nature of a man. And Muller had an, a really great quote here. Why do we, what do we rely on for this truth? What do we rely on to believe in the reality and the concept of the virgin birth? Muller says, the dependability of Scripture must ultimately rest on the doctrine of inspiration. The Gospels, as a result, provided the strongest evidence for the virgin birth because they represent the accurate message of God to the church. So we're depending on the Gospels, the Bible, the Scripture for the virgin birth and our belief in the virgin birth. We're depending on the doctrine of the inspiration that all of Scripture is literally God-breathed and men moved along by the Holy Spirit wrote down Scripture, and therefore we should depend upon Scripture as where we go to understand the virgin birth and its reality and its truth. It rests on the shoulders of the doctrine of inspiration. And what do the Gospels have to say? Well, let's look here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 18 through 25 and just see what the Gospels have to say. In verse 18 now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with, with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. To take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been con conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him 
and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we read this account. This account's very, obviously very familiar to it. But what are some key observations that we need to make here uh, regarding the virgin birth through this account? Uh, Matthew's account teaches us, as does Luke's, as we'll see, that Jesus' conception was of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the virgin birth came through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it says, before they came together, before, uh, at, uh, before Joseph and Mary had ever had rela- uh, sexual relations, she was found to be with child, and that child was of the Holy Spirit. And so the virgin birth came about through the reality of, or overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And also see that later on in verse 20. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the angel informed him that the child that had been conceived, Mary was pregnant, that conception had taken place through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's turn over now to Luke because the same facts are uh, affirmed there in Luke chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 26, and we'll read and make the observations in some of the key verses. So beginning in verse 26, Luke writes, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, verse 34, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered in verse 35, the key verse, and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she, was, uh, she who was also called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here in Luke's account of the virgin birth, verse 35 is the key verse, right? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come on upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Mary questions the possibility of the reality of her being able to have a child because of her virginity. And the angel tells her what? This will be a miraculous birth. This will be a sovereign birth 
through the sovereign power of God at the agency of the Holy Spirit. And that is the reality of the virgin birth. The incarnation of Christ took place through, that, through the virgin birth, and it was ultimately the work of God by the Holy Spirit, a miraculous birth brought about by God. So letter B on page 4. I'm coming back to the book now with just a general overview of those two passages in the virgin birth and unpacking this. Um, and Dr. Moeller makes some really fascinating, uh, really does three fascinating theological implications of the virgin birth. And that's what I want to walk through now are those um, implications. Okay? Several things took place in the virgin birth that have theological implications, so we want to look at those. Number one, and this is coming straight from the book, Dr. Muller says, the virgin birth affirms the true identity of Christ as truly God and truly man. Okay, it's through the virgin birth where we understand that, God, that Christ is both God and man. And that's the reality of that doctrine. The virgin birth as designed by God made possible the union of the two natures, both God and man. And through the virgin birth, God uniquely united these natures in the person of Christ. This was the way he made it possible. Number two there, under letter A, is a, is a quote uh, from Wayne Grudem. He, he has it, it's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, but Moeller quotes him uh, in chapter four. He said, God, in his wisdom, ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity should be evident from the fact that of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So, Moeller and Grudem both making the point of the powerful, sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit in bringing about Jesus Christ taking on an additional human nature through the reality of the virgin birth, both God and man in one person, Jesus Christ. Okay? Moeller's point, the virgin birth is, is the affirmation of the true identity of Christ through that. Now, I love what Grudem says. If you go to look at his systematic theology, um, he, he offers this question. He's like, could God have done it some other way? Is there another way that, Christ, or that God could have brought about the true humanity of Christ and the, the deity of Christ into one person through some other means? And so he offers a couple of suggestions for us to consider. But think about that for a second. Is there some other way God could have done it? Well, of course, he's God, right? Sure, he could have. But those, some other way could have significant and, uh, impacts upon the entire story of redemption, the entire story of salvation. So Grudem offers a couple that I've included here in the notes. He, said, he says under number three there, towards the bottom of page four, could he have cre been created in heaven and descended? So the reality would be, could God have brought about the two natures in one man, Jesus Christ, in heaven, and then Christ could have then descended upon earth without going through the virgin birth through Mary? What do you guys think? Could he have done that? Sure. That's right. He could have done that. But that has implications, right? Grudem goes on to say, this would have obscured our view of his true humanity. 
Why? Because he would have had no visible part in the human race. He came through the normal means of the entire human race by God using the, the, his powerful work of the Holy Spirit to bring about his birth through a woman. Okay? So he participates fully in that way. Could he have created him uh, through two human parents? I heard a no. Anybody, anybody say yes? No, he couldn't have, right? And he goes on to say that this would have obscured his holiness. Grudem says it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was also fully God if he was like us in every way. So if he was like us in every possible way, humanly speaking, it would have been very hard for us. It would have been hard for him to accomplish redemption, number one, but it would have been very hard for us to see the reality of him being both God and man in one, if he had two, both human parents. So I thought those were interesting uh, considerations for us to step back and go, okay, we understand the virgin birth is, takes place through the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit, but when you consider some other options, I feel like it gives us sort of some, uh, some ways to consider what this one truly looks like, if that makes sense. He could have created Jesus in heaven, he could have just descended as he ascended, or he could have created maybe Jesus through two human parents, but that would have obscured the view of either way, other than the way which was through the virgin birth. You know, one other thing I thought about, too, just driving down here this afternoon, and we just read it here. Look back at um, verse 36. He says, right after you know, verse 35, where he announces that um, this is going to be a miraculous conception, right, through the Spirit, meaning it's ultimately happening through the power of God. And then look at the very next verse. I, I've never really picked up on, the, on this before. Um, he says, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Let's stop right there. Okay, so boom, we just made the switch, right? We're talking about Mary. We're talking about uh, virgin birth, we're talking about most high son of God, the throne of David, all this grand glorious stuff, and it's all going to come through Mary and the virgin birth, but then all of a sudden, boom, we switch to uh, Elizabeth and her um, conception. So what's the point, right? But look at the rest of the verse. Um, he says, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So there's this um, illustrative power, I think, in, in that verse and in that reality, right? Because we know from the Old Testament, from some of the key births that took place and some of the key women, what was their reality? They were barren, right? The, the Old Testament text says their wombs were closed. And then how were they opened? They were opened by the power of God. And so I think even Elizabeth's pregnancy, her being barren, her not being able to have children, all of a sudden now she can have children, Certainly that took place through the power of God opening her womb. It's sort of illustrative of the power of God and what took place through the Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus in Mary's womb. So a little bit of an illustrative point there I think that maybe is helpful for us to consider. Look at page, back to page five of the notes. Uh, number two. Number two. So the virgin birth points also to the miracle by which this child is conceived without sin. Okay, that's Moeller's second uh, theological implication of the virgin birth. 
the reality that the virgin birth points to the miracle by which this child is conceived without sin. And that goes back to Dick's point when I said, could he have had two human parents? And you said, no, it, that plays into this whole theological concept of being born without sin. Since Jesus did not have a human father, Joseph was not his father in the physical sense. The line of descent of, from Adam is partially interrupted. Okay, And this is important. Why? Number one there, Jesus did not ascend from Adam in the same way as all other men. Thus, the legal guilt and the moral corruption that belongs to all their human beings did not belong to Christ. Moeller here quotes number two. This is a quote from Moeller's chapter. According to Scripture, all those who descend from Adam receive the guilt of sin. We know that to be true, the doctrine of imputation. But that line is broken in Jesus. Jesus does not descend from Adam, and therefore he does not participate in that common condition, which is also Paul's point in Romans 5, verses 18 to 19. Yes. 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 Exactly. Exactly. That's well said, John. Thank you. Other thoughts? Questions? All right, back to, thank you, John. That, that's really helpful. Um, look at number two there, right in the, well, I just read that, number two. Gabriel, number three, Gabriel affirms this idea in the following statement. So now if we go back to verse 35 again, we have this reality of, of Jesus not uh, receiving the imputation of sin of Adam. Because look at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. Okay, It's the holy child who will be called the Son of God. So we see this reality that the line of Sin through Adam is broken through the miraculous work of the virgin birth. Letter B, is it enough to say that Jesus in the virgin birth did not inherit sin from Adam? And so Grudem presses the point a little bit further in his systematic theology. Is it enough just to say, if we're talking about Jesus being fully God and fully man without sin, is it just enough to say that that's because the line of Adam is interrupted? Okay. Um, he would say no, and he would go on to say this, which I think is helpful to consider. While the interruption of Adam's line is true and interrupts the transmission of original sin, we should not say that it is only through the man that the sin is transmitted. He goes on to say, number two, Grudem states that it is enough to say the line of Adam was broken. Sorry, and that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Thus, Jesus did not inherit original sin. So why did Jesus not inherit sin from Mary? This becomes the question. Of course, we know the Catholic Church says that Mary was also divine. 
she was holy. But we know Scripture obviously never affirms this, and then they go completely haywire in their worship of Mary as a divine individual. Grudem goes on to state, would she not have inherited sin from her mother? Because obviously Mary's not divine. And he ultimately leaves the answer to why Jesus did not inherit sin through Mary is attributed to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you with power. The power of the Most High will overshadow you and the Holy Child will descend. And so there's a piece of this that we have to, re- to place inside the power of God through the agency of the Spirit in bringing about the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless Son of God. Man, God, one person without sin. Okay? Number three, thoughts about that? Questions? All right, number three. Continue to move along. Uh, The virgin birth uh, accentuates the miraculous nature of God's redemption. So this is Moeller's third theological implication from the virgin birth. The virgin birth accentuates the miraculous nature of God's redemption. And this comes all the way back to kind of how we started and the connection of the virgin birth to the entire story of redemption, the gospel and salvation and, and redemption itself. Now, said another way, the virgin birth dis- demonstrates that salvation exclusively, exclusively rather, comes from the Lord. And number one, the promise we know from Genesis 3.15, the promise of the gospel and salvation would come through the seed of the woman. The virgin birth demonstrates that God fulfilled that promise himself through the birth of the Savior. There were no human means to produce this seed that would bring salvation to the world. Only God could do that. So Christ's birth, his virgin birth, could only have happened through God and his power. It could only happen through God. Thus, it connects to the whole story of redemption. The whole story of redemption could only take place through the power of God. And so the, virgin, the, the whole story of redemption and salvation rests on this virgin birth, which rests on the power of God. There are no human beings that could have brought this about that would propitiate, be a propitiation for sin. And that's the reality of the virgin birth. Yes. Interesting. That's that's a very good point. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. It connects exactly to the point. Number two, there under there, the virgin birth of Christ emphasizes the need for God's supernatural intervention in history and displays God's initiative. So as Brian said, as allows all those individuals to die, time to go on, there, there, is, there is no other way other than for it to be through God and his power and through his intervention in history to provide redemption and Moeller goes on to say here the virgin birth of Christ stands at the vanguard of the New Testament and it has become a litmus test 
for orthodoxy. So that's how important this reality is. I just thought that was a powerful way he said this. It stands as the vanguard of the New Testament. Look at the, at the quote here uh, from, from the book. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us think of hurrying past it. Although I probably have been guilty of. Amen? It stands on the threshold of the New Testament blatantly, supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding any further. Wow, that is a powerful testimony about the virgin birth. Defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding any further. It stands at the, the vanguard, at the door of Christmas, this reality of the virgin birth. Only could take place in God's power. Thus, the whole story of redemption is only happening through it and only happening through the power of God. So a few concluding points that we can look at and a few questions that I wanted to unpack for all of you to consider. We see here, just to wrap up in the conclusion, three, uh, three theological implications of the virgin birth. Um, over on page 7, the virgin birth affirms the true identity of Christ as truly God and truly man. The virgin birth points to the miracle by which this child is conceived without sin. And the virgin birth accentuates the miraculous nature of God's redemption. It can only take place through him. So I want to give you a few um, practical thoughts maybe to consider when we think about the, the powerful reality of the virgin birth. And one place that um, a couple of these are coming from, he, um, Dr. Muller talks about Mary and Joseph uh, being the model of faith to be a part of this story which I thought was a very good and interesting point that he made that I think has practical um, implications. So let's look at these questions. Number one, and this actually question that comes from Dr. Moeller's conclusion, the virgin birth creates a moral obligation. It must be believed. So simply ask, do you believe in the miraculous virgin birth of Christ? If you're here in Christ tonight, I hope you do. If you're here tonight and you're not sure you're in Christ, uh, this is part of where it begins, believing in the virgin birth of Christ. And we'd love to talk to you about that and the reality of the gospel um, if the Lord is leading you to do that. Number two, um, Joseph is a model of faith in the virgin birth. He believed the Lord and the news of the virgin birth. And he did, he did exactly what the Lord told him to do and took Mary for his wife. Remember, he was going to put her away. He was afraid. She was pregnant. But... The Lord through the angel told him, no, don't be afraid. This is a miraculous work through the Spirit, and you need to take Mary to be your wife. So he did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And so a point off of that, I believe, is this. What steps can you, can I take this week 
to not only believe in the virgin birth by faith, but believe God's word by faith and act upon it. This is, a, this is an illustration coming out of the virgin birth where we see somebody believe upon it, act upon God's words. And so we, it's another reality check for us. Are we believing the truth? Are we believing God's word? But are we acting, acting upon that truth? And where do we need to work harder in that? Number three, Mary is also a model of faith in the virgin birth. She humbly accepted God's plan for her. And the key to her model and the whole story is her humility, right? The key is her humility. So we key off of her model, and we say, how do you need to respond in a greater humility to God's word? How should we respond in a greater humility to his commands? How should we respond in a greater humility when God providentially organizes our circumstances for Good or bad, accept those and wait and be patient on what he's trying to do in and through our lives. And then number four, Christmas is just weeks away. Amen? We're all ready. I have a niece that's so cute. She's already posted. She just got married this summer. And she posted on Facebook. She said, is, are you guys going to think I'm weird if I've already bought five Christmas presents? for friends and family. So she's always this person that's way out in front of everything. I was thinking, wait, it's only August. I guess it's a few weeks away. Uh, good for her. But it is a few weeks away. And you know how, we all know how this goes, right? It, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and then boom, it's here and gone. So as Christmas approaches, how can a greater understanding of the virgin birth change your view and, and inform our celebration of this wonderful time. So it's, it's always a good time for us to consider that reality before we step into uh, the wonderful busyness of the Christmas season. How can we let the reality of the virgin birth inform us in our celebration uh, this coming Christmas? So let's be ready and prepared for that. Uh, I left you a few other notes here that I'm not going to cover tonight, but it, but it is there. It's just some, uh, it's a small section that I had from other notes just talking about the humanity of Christ and uh, his human attributes. So you can take that and look over that uh, at your leisure. It's just helpful to get a greater grasp of Jesus and his humanity um, and the one flesh concept, uh, both God and man in one flesh. So you can take that and look over that um, as well. If you have any questions at all, please let me know. I would love to interact with that. Uh, we're going to finish up just a few minutes early. We'll have some time uh, for fellowship. But let me close us in a word of prayer tonight. Lord, yes. Yes. Right. Sure. This, this is not a, a trivial matter you know, with the Middle East. It's, it's really to accept this that you're going to be pregnant because you're going to be physically pregnant to others. And then for Joseph, the same way. He's got to deal with this stigma yeah. of you know, pregnancy out of wedlock. So I, I just point that out because it was 
saw your point, and even in making the point, I think it's easy to gloss over that. I guess you were alluding to more than that. I think sometimes we forget that there's a time span in the Ouija story first. So we get flooded from, from that event. Yeah. Yeah. The obedience point, I just wanted to underscore that because that is a big part of it that's hard for us to keep in mind when we walk through this. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very helpful point because you think about the nine months, all of that time that's there, right, to, to, to walk in humble obedience against what is coming. And it kind of even goes back in a, a sort of a tangential way just to circumstances that the Lord brings into our lives, you know, to keep us humble and dependent and trusting in Him and, and all those things. So it's a very, very helpful point. I appreciate that. Anyone else? Thank you for that. Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time tonight, and I pray that it's been helpful and beneficial. Lord, give us a a greater sense and understanding and just reality of the power of what took place in the birth of Christ. Lord, the implications for Joseph and Mary, Father, and what they lived through humbly in faith in that whole time span. Father, we pray tonight as well that we would understand just the reality and the weight of your entire redemptive plan of being ushered in and through the virgin birth of Christ and how critical it is, as Dr. Muller so helpfully helps us understand, it's, it, it demands to be believed in. And Lord, just help us to believe in it, help us to embrace it, and help the things of this world not to crowd it out, Father. Help us to tell others about it, as you give us opportunity, Lord, may it embolden us in our faith and our walk and our humble obedience before you. I thank you for everyone here and um, their commitment to be here, and I pray this has been an encouraging time as well. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all.